That's me, James Bond, and I'm Roger Moore. This is not so much a commentary uh, in the sense of I'm going to discuss the film you're, you're going to watch. Rather, a discussion is not about really all about the film because, quite honestly, some of the films is 20, 30 years ago that I, I made them. But more or less, it's uh, thoughts that come to mind while I'm watching and other things that happened around it and other films that I made during that time and, and before. This sequence shot at Northholt, which is the military airdrome in North London, not that far from Pinewood Studios, rather conveniently placed. There is a story that uh, an American plane coming in large mistook their uh, gasometers close to Heathrow and also close to Northholt. They now have N on <laughs> the one by Northolt because the pilot came in and he landed the wrong airdrome, which meant they had to take everybody off, uh, unload things so it could take off on the runway and go to Heathrow. <laughs> I think it's a sort of interesting twist because I am doubling as impersonating a, uh, an actor who used to be my walking double, which is why I look so much like him. He was a walking double, second unit double, uh, on the Persuaders. Moralists never turn your back on Bond. Well, it's a small world. You're a Toro too. Interrogation. Sí, coronel. Métalo al camión. Go. Where, where am I standing and what do I say? I look as though it's happening for the first time. I don't like things to look as though they're rehearsed. <laughs> the critics know that I'm that sort of actor. Interesting ideas, interesting stunts, I think, in Bond.
Gracias, querida. I'll see you in Miami. This is full of such, <laughs> I think, fun ideas. And to me, is is real bond. It's ridiculous model horse coming out of the bank. And this great plane. That's the magic of motion pictures. Get into the plane at North Holt in England and turn around and you're flying over Utah. It's the logic of motion pictures. You drop a penny in Moscow and it lands on the floor in London when you cut to it. The camera never lies except when you're making motion pictures. This is still Northolt. The plane was attached to a, a steel rod and I was sitting on top of it and could, could just go forward and, and tilt either way. I thought rather hairy as a, as a prop vehicle. But there again, I was always convinced they were, they were trying to kill me to get the insurance money. And that is miniature, of course. I think being in this plane stuck on the end of a nine-foot pole, sort of tearing through a, a hangar, is not really the way I want to spend the rest of my life. Quite a long pre-title sequence. Which has really nothing to do with the rest of the story. Again, wild inventiveness and typically Bond. All I wanted was a sweet distraction for an hour two. Had no I remember doing the publicity for uh, the film before Octopussy and being in New York and I think it was uh, the Today Show, or whatever the show was, uh, New York NBC, five o'clock news. And the lady interviewing me said, uh, what, is there gonna be another Bond? And I said, well, it always says at the end of one Bond that Bond will be back. And the, she said, well, what is the title of the new one? And I said, Octopussy. 
She looked rather stunned and said, you can't be serious. I said, well, what's wrong with little pussy? Cal <laughs> Scandal. Emma Porteous. Uh, I think she had a, a great eye uh, for colour and the creation, particularly of the latest things, which is, uh, I thought they were all wonderfully glamorous and all that wonderful Eastern flavour. The lyrics of the, the, the song were by Tim Rice. So it's all good pedigree stuff. Tim Rice, of course, is Sir Tim Rice, and he and uh, Lord Andrew Webber, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber, of course, did Jesus Christ Superstar. And Tim Rice has done the lyrics to a number of big hit musicals and songs, including Chess. times since the making of this it has changed a great deal well before you know you had a city divided by this this ugly ugly wall and, and barbed wire and sort of suspicion After the war came down, I went, uh, just after the war came down, I was there for UNICEF. And it was interesting, the sort of the poverty of the office buildings by comparison with the West. Uh, newspaper offices that I went to, uh, seeking publicity, you know, awareness for UNICEF. One of the interesting things that was in us, East Berlin, I found, because I'd just come from uh, Central America. And one of the things that UNICEF does is to supply what they call ORS, oral rehydration therapy salts, uh, which can save the life of a child that is dehydrated through dysentery. And it, you mix it with some boiled water and the child drinks and rehydrates himself. As James Grant, who was the executive director at that time of 
uh, UNICEF would say it is also very good for hangovers. But anyway, I'd been in the field, I'd seen the way it's distributed, um, the way we raise funds, uh, you know, to pay for it, how mothers are taught to use it, uh, if it's not available, what they can do in its place. And then all of a sudden I'm in East Berlin and I'm in a plant that makes and packages the ORS sorts. And then one week later, I was doing a fundraiser, raising the money to pay for them. That was a, a good memory of Berlin, not a bond memory. It's now changed. It's now, uh, I mean, when you, you go through, through the Brandenburg tour, the Brandenburg Gate, and the rebuilding is just absolutely beautiful. The Adelaide Hotel, which has been restored to its former glory. I am over here. A lot of good things there. This is Miss Penelope Smallbull, my new assistant. I can remember something funny happening. Uh, in, in this scene, Bond comes in and there is a new assistant. Oddly enough, uh, a friend of mine, and James Clavell's daughter, James Clavell, the author of Shogun and Taipan, King Rat, Noble House. And Lewis absentmindedly uh, introduced her not as Miss Penelope Smallburn, but as Miss Penelope Smallbush. I can see you're going to fit in here very nicely. Very pretty girl, Michaela. Ah, here's my friend Bob Brown again. Morning, sir. Minister, Bob Brown, who had been in series Ivanhoe with me, Douglas Wilmer, who played a villain, I remember, in Ivanhoe. All, all the people who were in Bond played villains at some point in Ivanhoe, Doug, because it was the best parts. Douglas Wilmer and, of course, Christopher Lee. Sadly, Bernard Lee had uh, died before we started making Octopussy. And I suggested Bob Brown being godfather of my daughter. I thought it's almost keeping it in the family. And I was delighted when he was cast. The Fabergé egg. With my connections with, with Fabergé and Brute, you might have seen there might have been a, a, a little hidden meaning here that we all of a sudden have a Fabergé egg. There was no connection between Fabergé fragrance and Fabergé, Fabergé eggs, Fabergé, the, the Russian designer, uh, except it was a wonderful name. Great cachet. Find out what they're up to. Yes, Minister. Eyes only, 007. Operation Trove. You'll be replacing 009. He turned up dead in East Germany with that egg in his hand. I'm afraid there's not much to go on. Well, we do have one lead minister. Property of a lady. The next subject on the agenda is the... I'd worked with Stephen Burkhoff in... in The Saint, when he was a very, very young actor. And he's an actor who has to... 
really be in control, I think, of himself. He is, he's, a, he's very good, very inventive. <laughs> in the nicest way, he can chew the scenery. He's a, he's a larger-than-life character. He's done some very, very good work in the theater. Policies. Must I remind you, the committee, of our overwhelming superiority over NATO forces before we give it away? In East Germany, under my direct command... Uh, Peter Lamont sort of continued very much in the tradition that... Uh, Ken Adam of being wonderfully elaborate to the sets and, and futuristic, sort of make the actors look a little small, but good for Stephen Burkhoff to be larger than life. The British maintain only a token force. We have played out a variety of attack strategies on the new Kultsoft computer and find that a lightning thrust by 10 armored divisions from the north and by... You don't have to modify your performance because you're on a large set. Uh, the camera is going to come in and find you. In the theater you have to project, but you must uh, not project in the cinema unless you're playing somebody who is who naturally projects. NATO will counterattack with nuclear weapons. Never! The West is decadent and divided. It has no stomach to risk our atomic reprisals. Throughout Europe, daily demonstrations demand unilateral nuclear disarmament. I see no reason to risk war to satisfy your personal paranoia and thirst for conquest. We must turn our energies to pressing domestic problems. General Gogo, let me remind Comrades, you. sit down. I wish to Both tell you. Of you. World socialism will be achieved peaceably. As Eva Robesteyer. Defensive. Duh? Is that understood, General Olof? You work with so many people <laughs> in films and television that you. Sometimes I look at the television will be on and something that I was in and I look and I say, goodness me, I worked with him, I worked with her, I'd quite forgotten. Little wonder they don't remember me. Please, please. I am trying to concentrate. What is it? It's terrible news, Comrade General. The reproduction has been stolen in, in transit. The thief was dealt with, but the egg was lost in the river. Your incompetence will destroy us all. We'll have a replacement, mate. There is no time, Comrade General. I have just been informed of an unscheduled inventory in two days. Control yourself, Lincoln. I'll tell our people in London, we must have the genuine egg back. 
I hope we can reach them in time. I'm almost frightened going to places like Salabas. They might clack the hammer down and I'll be sold amongst the antiques. Green gold imperial Easter egg by Carl Fabergé. Enameled in translucent green. I'm very mean. I don't. <laughs> I don't buy things. I wait for them to be given. How much should it fetch? Oh, 250, 300,000 pounds. Anything more would be crazy. Uh, who's the auctioneer? Philip Voss. I don't think I'd worked with Philip Voss before. She wouldn't have to be here in person, you know. She would always be represented by proxy. I'll start it at 150,000 pounds. 150. 60, 170, 170, 108. Christina Weyborn, another Swedish lady. You see, we had uh, Maud Adams, Swedish. I think Mary Stavon is in this as well. It's a big Swedish connection. Now there's Louis Jordan, my old friend Louis. 300,000 pounds. And 20? Now, I was delighted to be working with, with Louis Jordan. We'd met a few years before. Are you bidding, sir? And we played tennis together. And spent some time when he lived in Paris. Louis loved to serve herring in... Uh, I remember we used to go to... a bistro in, in Paris and have the, the herring, which he liked, you know, the pickled herring, and he liked to prepare it and serve it. Great speciality. He loved, loved to be in charge of catering. Louis was uh, actually born, I think, in Nice and went made some great movies in Hollywood. Of course, one of the films that Louis made in Hollywood was one that I wanted to do. It was a, a film called The Swan, with Grace Kelly and Alec Guinness. But the director said he didn't want a contract player, so I, I didn't get it. I don't hope that against Louis. We're still friends. 500,000 pounds. 500,000 pounds. I have half a million pounds. All done? Any more? Yours, sir. 500,000 pounds. Handsome man, Louis. Could have been stuck with it. I doubt it. He had to buy it. But why? That's what I intend to find out. Bond Street. Kabir Bedi is uh, Louis Jordan's uh, sidekick in this. And uh, he was a very, very big star in Italy, apart from India, because he was known as the man with the green eyes did a television series that was very popular there. He is now, I think, in the Far Pavilions in London. 
I switched to the fake. The musical in the West End. I think for, uh, with, as I've often said, that working on a bond was like working with family, and you, most of you had worked together before. And so I also sort of felt for actors coming in for one day, and there's this whole bunch of people that all know one another and are making jokes, and you're being very serious. You, you're getting paid to do your best in one day, and you've got this stupid English actor, uh, me, you know, who's making jokes. But I do it, try to put people at ease. Try desperately. Sunny climb where I used to spend my time, a serving of Her Majesty the Queen. Yes, Udaipur, the most beautiful spot. And we lived where we shot in, in the palace in Udaipur. One section of the palace had been converted into a hotel. And in fact, it was being finished when we moved in, the paint was still wet. But what a wonderful location. And what a wonderful place to live. Here is Vijay Armitage, the great uh, Indian Davis Cup player. Great fun to play tennis with. He actually was a bit like me, petrified of snakes. <laughs> And I really got him going. When we started uh, Octopussy, the part VJ was written for, for VJ, and there were going to be the gags with a tennis racket. And British actors' equity were up in arms because they said that VJ wasn't an actor and that there were plenty of Indian actors that could play this part. You know that it is VJ Armitage. It ended up that Albert Moses, who is driving uh, the taxi, uh, was in the film because there had to be somebody employed at the same time as VJ from the union. That's where Kamal lived. It was not a bad idea, as it turned out. They were both an asset to the movie. How do I get to him? He plays backgammon most afternoons and evenings here at the Hotel Casino. As a guest, you're automatically a member. Well, then why don't we beat there later? Well, I'll change into something less casual. Oh, here, you may need this to play with your asp. I suppose today we say it's sexist, uh, but part of the glamour of the bond is to have attractive-looking people sitting around a swimming pool. This is the, the palace of Udaipur, and there is Mary Stavin. The easiest way of getting a, a picture in the paper is to have a pretty girl. And 
the Bond Publicity Office was very aware of that. They had a lot of pretty girls around. I spent my life smiling. Carrying the mantle being <laughs> uh, presumably the character irresistible to the opposite sex. It's a rotten job, but somebody's got to do it. I never really noticed, really not that aware of uh, sort of the reaction of people. I sometimes hear people saying, oh, Roger Moore, oh, Sean Connery, no. I hear <laughs> sort of things as you pass by. I remember once we were, Michael Caine and I were walking, oddly enough, down Bond Street where we just saw the, the Southerners. And, uh, a boy and a girl were walking towards us, and Michael and I split and let them walk between us. And Michael said, do you hear that? He said, yes, she said, that's Michael Caine. He said, no, he said, that's Roger Moore. She was looking at him, and the other one was looking at me. It was quite funny. The south of this. Half a million pounds. The man at the auction. Precisely. Christian yeah, Wayborn, she played, if I remember correctly, Greta Garbo in a Hollywood biopic. What will you have? Nothing, thank you. Oh. Some other time, perhaps? Thank you. Six and one, that should fit. I'd never played backgammon until, uh, until I started on Bond. make it interesting, Major? A double to 100... It was Covey that led me down the path to iniquity and sin. Can't accept. Not with your luck. You know that just outside these... Just outside any of these shots... There is a backgammon board standing, waiting, and Cubby is sitting in a very comfortable chair, waiting for me to finish the shot, to come back and continue the game. The way we played was that we kept a score sheet. Uh, we played uh, a dollar a point. So you could uh, lose 28, 56, uh, 100-odd dollars. Uh, on a game, but you, you win three, you lose two, and you get back and forth. And, and as a debt sort of starts going up, Cappy, I remember, says, right, he said, well, we'll increase the stakes. Meaning, you know, if you win, you can get your money back <laughs> if you're on a losing streak. Uh, and we got up to, I think, $250,000. <laughs> And Cubby said, right, we're playing $100,000 a point. His uh, meaning that the point that he got it back to 
a thousand dollars, he'd say, right, we go back to a dollar. So that neither of us was going to be hurt. And, and the, we would always settle up on the last day of play. Sometimes I would lose a couple of thousand, he would lose, or he would lose a few. It was a very inexpensive way of passing four months, five months shooting. I prefer cash. I don't think there was any uh, reason for this backgammon game, apart from the fact it would give somebody the excuse to say it's all in the wrist. Kamal Khan, my security. And yours. Kabir Lili. That means that if he can squash dice. <laughs> it's not really in the wrist, you know. Should I be following them? Well, you should, but I think they'll be following this. Thank you. Vijay will take you from here. I'll stay and see if I can find out anything more about Kamal. Good. Hold on to these, will you? Keep you in curry for a few weeks, will you? Thank you. It's a wonderful practice. So I think this is the essence of a bad loser. <laughs> man is not going to let me get away with this. <laughs> Crushing the dice was nothing compared with what he really wants to do to me. And shooting these scenes again, you know, you have, you have a slight problem with, uh, with crowd control. You, ca you cannot always control other traffic and also individuals who, they might be deaf. They might be in a hurry, they're not going to take any notice that, they think they can get away. They're not aware that there is something rather uh, life-threatening could happen. Step on it! This should shake them off. India is a very large country. And very heavily populated. That, that cyclist wasn't planned at all. He just happened to break through the cordon. Completely unaware that there was a movie going on. Well, thank God for hard currency. It, it is a, a bit of business that's used all, in all the Bond films where there is the cutaway during the chase where somebody is uh, about to take a drink and it pours down their throat. Uh, the money falls into the hat, as you see in this scene. That is part of Bond. That's what happens. Keep your head down!
thank you. The point with making a Bond film is, is quite, quite often that you're on a location and you, you cannot spend the time or risk uh, what might happen doing stunts in a real street. And so you have to reconstruct it in the studio. And I, I'm always amazed at, at art departments so that they can actually get the thing. And then you can cut and it all fits into place. Nobody's ever aware, the public's not aware, when they're looking at a scene like this, that that wasn't uh, actually on the location. The ability to recreate in the studio what you have been shooting in, on location, I think Peter Lamont was remarkably talented at doing this. There is never, never one moment that you don't, uh, that you suspect that what you're looking at is not actually on the location because you've seen the location and he can give the director and the director of photography all the places they can put their camera. Boys in Adventure uh, springs to mind because of the setting it is. You know, is, is India, is the empire, the old Raj, that feeling. And, you know, that is boys' own adventure today. certainly pays to advertise. This way, James. Ah, Q. How are you? Most unhappy, Douglas. We had a wonderful running gag always going with, with, uh, with Desmond, <laughs> which was he hated to wear shorts. I would always say, don't you think, uh, actually, it would be much better if you were in shorts. <laughs> then he'd look, and he knew we were getting him at it. Last. Having problems keeping it up, Q? Experimental model. Jeremy Bullock is uh, Q's assistant in this. I first met Jeremy Bullock uh, when I was making The Saint, and he was one of Cliff Richard's friends in Summer Holiday. Not only a homing device, but an extremely delicate microphone as well. Goes in there like that. Now, take a fountain pen. Twist the top. It's what you call a poison pen letter. A highly concentrated mixture of nitric and hydrochloric acid. Dissolves all metals. Wonderful for poison pen letters. Pay attention, 007. Now, pull the top off the pen. 
Now, with this ultra-sensitive earpiece, you can listen in on the bug. The homing device is compatible with the standard issue radio directional finder in your watch. If you haven't lost it. Seiko were willing to cooperate, I think, and, and, and pay a little money into the reduction for product placement. What's that? Oh. In the first bond, I used a Rolex, but I don't think they ever gave a Rolex. Very handy. Seiko, on the other hand, did give me a couple of watches. Which, by the time I'd taken 10% off from my agent, left me with one hand. Mm. Perfect image, Q. Really, 007. Look, I haven't time for these adolescent antics. Ah. It's the best we can do, Commander. That's oh, beautiful. Thank you. Oh, go on. Get along. I've got my work to do. I'll give you a hand, Q. Thank you. Don't forget this. Thank you, BJ. Don't let him teach you any of his bad habits. Beautiful, isn't it? Oh, that poor. There was a pool there. <laughs> I could swim in the morning uh, and do my morning exercise. I didn't need any of this special equipment. Just I used to carry uh, with me uh, a rubber mat. Thank you. Did you change your mind? I'm glad. Are you? When we were lining up this particular scene, Christina Wayborn, this, you see her touching the glass. So does he have a proposition? And, you know, we did the line-up. She said, no, I'll stay here for the lighting. And so my uh, stand-in went in. I heard the price of eggs was going up, but just that little... And afterwards he came out and he said, God, he said, he said, she fancies me. I said, she fancies you. He said, what makes you think that? He said, well, you know, you can sense. I said, did she look at you and run her fingers up and down the stem of the glass? He said, yes. She's rehearsing. So that if I should depart this world, suddenly you'll have something to remember me by? Something like that. It's for my scrapbook. I collect memories. Well, let's get on with uh, making a few. I'm not method at all, but I, I know some. you have to rehearse things, uh, certainly when action is involved and also for the camera and everything else. I think the things always look better as though they have just happened, which in true real life has happened. You don't rehearse something 55 times in life. It happens there and then. Somebody, their nose runs. It's all part of life. I remember Betty Davis making a film in England and uh, she got very upset uh, with the cameraman, with the operator, because uh, he said, could we go again? I missed it. Betty Davis was right 
on the first take. She had done it, she had got it. And she was always furious if you had to do it again. I, I much prefer to be, oh my God, the tongue, really. <laughs> God, 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 God. Oh, oh. From what I remember, we would, uh, you know, you go and you say, say right, this is, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have the camera here and you're gonna come through the door there and, uh, and let's do it. And you see what actors have to offer, what the cameraman really can cope with and what you time-wise can cope with as a director. Good morning. Good morning. I didn't want to wake you, but since you're up, say a proper goodbye. There's the time. Mm. Another bit of product placement. Beautiful view, isn't it? I don't know how to say goodbye. Actions speak louder than words. You're so right. I don't advise people to try that themselves. It doesn't work. But a beautiful shot. Alan Hume, who uh, was the director of photography on this. Very good, a very, very nice man. I, I have always been very lucky to work with such good technicians and find them all so pleasant. And I was lucky they were nice to me. Look at this, the, the island, the floating island, floating palace. I think the old Maharani had this built in the past to keep his mistresses on. I saw film the other day, footage from Udipo, and the lake was dry. Very sad. And this is the first time we actually meet Octopussy in the film. It's a very long time before you meet the leading lady. To watch uh, Cubby and Michael and, and the rest of the team, the writers discussing and the director, the direction they were going and Barbara Broccoli was always there. Uh, you knew that you were in hands of a very smooth operation. Everything was thought out, it was well planned. Any hitch was your own fault. I was allowed to to speak up about casting, to give my ideas. Oh, here comes crazy Roger again. 
we'd be in and sitting around talking about what what we were planning to do, what was what of what I would be a part. And dice, preferably loaded. His name is James Bond. It's a nice man, Dick Maybaum. Spent uh, quite a bit of time together. No. Clever. I, I, I've always admired, I'm, I'm envious of writers. Patience. The, uh, the ability to shut off everything. I know James Covell was a friend of mine, and, uh, and he would start writing at six in the morning and would write till 12 or 1 not allow himself to be interrupted. I uh, will start, I'm halfway through a sentence, a phone will ring somewhere, I, I feel I have to, I have my thoughts go off in different directions. I do not have the industry to write. I once started writing because Michael Caine said I, I should do my book. <laughs> I don't want to, my God. And I thought, well, I, I, I know one way of doing it because I didn't want to do that chronological thing. I thought I'll talk about all my illnesses and I shall call it out of the bedpan. And sort of my hospital experiences as a child. I got up to age 16. I had about 15,000 words, and the only uh, disc of it was in a bag that was stored on a Geneva airport. I had no backup. Well, I had a backup of about 8,000 words, uh, and I was so discouraged, I just didn't have the ability to go on with it, or I think really the desire. I wonder why, what the decision was that I would not be wearing a white dinner jacket at this point. Bond invariably wore a white dinner jacket. I wish I could go back in time and work it. Oh, this is the famous sheep's eyeball. Well rested? I believe you and Miss Magda have I'm not sure it wasn't a sheep's eyeball, although it could well have been marzipan. You're too kind. Uh, you don't mind if we start. The souffle can't wait. At the risk of appearing to be making light dinner conversation, may I ask exactly why I'm here? I mean, after all, you do have... I was once entertained in Cairo and I was guest of honor in a tent. The shadows of the pyramids at Giza and I had as guest of honor to be served the eyeball of the sheep and I swallowed it very quickly. I didn't want to chew it. Guaranteed results. It was permanent brain damage. And I'm not going to say that the next day I had a stomach ache and went to the doctor and he looked up my rear end and said, 
You've got to trust me. Stuffed sheep's head. Great face could be a biddy. It's odd. But when I'm stared at, I seem to lose my appetite. <laughs> oh, uh, thank you for dinner. Until tomorrow, then. Having jumped around all over the world wearing a, a dinner jacket in the most unlikely places and in the hottest of climates sometimes, uh, I look around me today and I see that people really don't dress properly anymore. For example, I'm, I actually am recording this commentary in Monte Carlo, where I'm fortunate enough to live some parts of the year. And you go into the casino here today, and it's not as it was in the old days. In the old days, you had to dress like Bond. You had to have a tie, you had to have a jacket, and hopefully your jacket matched your trousers. Today, it's anything goes, shirt sleeves, and uh, probably even shorts. Pigeon, it's always it's always very good. Good audience shocker. You know when you see somebody with Bond or anybody in this position that John Glenn will have a pigeon go through. I think it really represented Cubby's attitude to me. I was his pigeon. I think we had it in uh, Fiorentini on the mountainside. Command performance that uh, uh, an American actor I knew was was invited at the same time as me, and the Queen was going to be there. And he said, "What did we have to wear?" I said, "You know, it's a white tie and tails." He said he didn't have that, uh, but he had a very nice velvet jacket and a scarf that he thought would uh, look very chic. Well, the Queen came along the line, and she got to me. I was attired in white tie and tails. <laughs> looking so I'd stepped out of a Fred Astaire movie and we chatted for a few seconds, she smiled and then she she moved, her eyes passed over the actor wearing a velvet jacket and then settled on the man who was dressed correctly on the other side of him. Royal Premiers, you dress correctly.
Come, old God. Thank you, General Olaf. I, I remember Cubby telling this story. He'd been, he, he'd been in Moscow. According to Lenkin. And at the American embassy, the, the, the because the, the Russians actually had wanted Cubby to come and make a picture in Russia to get an interest in the Russian film industry. And the American ambassador screened Man with the Golden Gun. And at the beginning, of course, the, say, Scaramanga was paid a million dollars a shot and trained by the KGB. And at the end of the film, one of the Russians who was watching the film turned to Cubby and he said, he did not train him so well. A precise timing will be essential. Remember, nothing must be changed. smoking and lurking shots. Everything taken care of? As you ordered, Excellence. So, uh, you recovered it. From an accomplice of the thief. He must be eliminated at once. Naturally. There must be no further security breach. This fake has caused enough Trouble. I must go. Hang around. <laughs> you are most kind, General Olaf. Udapo is in, you know, the mountains in Rajasthan, and the Maharani, not Maharaja, the Maharani, which is higher than the Maharaja, they were called Maharanis because they were the ones who would not kneel in obeisance to the Mongols. They were rather magnificent, and this, the Maharani of Udapur, who, who lived in the majority of the palace, was the first of his family ever to be educated or live outside India. And he had uh, a place in London. Uh, and he was very aware, very conscious of the poverty and the need for assistance to the people in, in Odipur, and he was, he was very generous with them. The Englishman has escaped. He won't go very far. We'll track him. That was the time that, uh, you know, it's one of those times when I look back with shame, uh, seeing the work I now do uh, and have done for 15 years with UNICEF, that there was a lot of uh, poverty around in India. Uh, and I'd made two films there, Octopussy and uh, Sea Wars with Greg Peck. 
Um, I can remember the, being amused, which I shouldn't be, at the way the police controlled the crowds that were trying to watch what was the movie that was being made, and they were being held back. And the police in India have what they call lattes, the big, heavy cane sticks, at which they hit people with. <laughs> and I watched as I saw one policeman go up to people trying to push forward, and he raised his arm with the stick. And the man looked up at the stick, and he got quick, sharp knee in the groin for his pains. That's not what I really like seeing crowd control. Good. Let the sport commence. It really is Boy's Own. Boy's Own were adventure yarns, uh, usually uh, about some remote outpost of the British Empire. And the hero, rather like Bond, would go through all these, uh, these adventures. Things that didn't happen in Edwardian England. Sit. The line indicated in the script was nice pussy or here kitty. And I said, you know, John, I don't think that works. I think it would be much better to say sit. As I sit, as I raise my finger. He said, Why would you do that? I said, Because Barbara Woodhouse, who trains animals, always, that's her famous thing with dogs, sit. He says, Yes, but only people in England know that. I said, No, she is famous in America. And apart from that, it doesn't matter whether people know that. It is just absolutely ridiculous to do it. And it worked. Now, parts of this uh, on location and parts in the studio of this whole sequence, I do not like spiders. I do not like snakes. I loathe crocodiles <laughs> and alligators. And it was a question we were filming between Christmas and New Year, and if if I could finish before uh, Christmas, get all these shots out of the way, I would not have to come back to England from Switzerland between Christmas and the New Year. So I think Covey was really enjoying himself because the shots they set up for me was close-ups with, uh, with snakes, with the, <laughs> the spiders and the, the alligators, all in one day. Years ago, I was offered a series to play Tarzan. 
I quickly turned it down. I couldn't bear the thought of six or nine months standing holding my stomach in. Oh, that was the other thing, the leeches. <laughs> I love elephants. Beautiful creatures. Because I've worked with elephants before in but with a different type, not the Indian elephant, but with, with the African elephant. We were making Shout at the Devil and we had, a, we had to assimilate a, an elephant shoot because it was at that time when uh, ivory was collected and poor beasts were slaughtered, as they still are by poachers. And to do it, we, we had to go out into the bush and the rangers went off with a helicopter and they tranquilized would drive an elephant away a big massive elephant and and tranquilize it and then we'd wait 20 minutes and they would say now you can approach it and we could do our shots as though we were actually shooting and also taking the head then they'd have to inject behind the ears with the only place you can get to a vein of an elephant to get it up on its feet because their weight lying on the side, they crush their heart. And they wake up and they don't know what they're going to do. When they wake up, they're going to wake up with a headache and they're going to get mad. <laughs> We're stuck in the middle of this, the veldt, uh, with, with jeeps to get away in. And it was just the, the ranger, Lee Marvin, myself, in that jeep. And it wasn't driving on a road, it was going over tree trunks and dips and, and the elephant was not very friendly towards us. This is our first meeting in the film, isn't it? It takes an awful long time. I never realised it took so long to get to Maud. I was delighted that uh, the Maud was, was back with us because we uh, sort of enjoyed a friendship, you know, you know, just a professional friendship during the making of Ham of the Golden Gun. She has a very good sense of humour. And by the time we were making this film, she had a new man in her life, which was uh, Stephen Zanks, who arrived. Every we skip. <laughs> annoyed with Maud because every time we'd be sitting playing backgammon or something she would be often that we'd hear these phone calls going on there was only this one phone by the desk in the hotel in Lillebois and you'd hear her talking to Stephen and and then Stephen arrived from California my first words were <laughs> did you bring a Hershey bar I've always had a passion for chocolate and for Hershey bars. 
You remember Major Dexter Smythe? You were sent out to arrest him, weren't you? He just happened to have a Hershey bar with him. And every time I see Stephen, he gives me a Hershey bar. His mission was to recover a cache of Chinese gold seized in North Korea. Both he and his native guide disappeared. The gold was never found. And 20 years later, you were sent after him? Well, the guide's body turned up with a bullet still in his skull from Smythe's service revolver. I traced Smythe to Sri Lanka, faced him with the facts, and gave him 24 hours to clear up his affairs before I took him back. He committed suicide rather than face the disgrace of a court-martial. What's the connection? He was my father. While we were making this, uh, Kevin McClory had been in litigation uh, and Cubby had been in litigation, Eon had been in litigation, over the contention that McClory had that he had the right to make a Bond film, uh, having been the co-author or given the ideas of Thunderball to Ian Fleming. It was resolved uh, and agreed that he would could remake Thunderball and so Never Say Never Again was the title of the remake of Thunderball, which, which Sean did and was making while we were making Octopussy. You know what they say about the fittest? Octopussy? I, I don't remember any of these. Uh, I, I remember the negotiations that were going on about whether, whether or not Sean would be allowed to make Never Say Never Again and McClory allowed. Of course, McClory, I think I, think I have to explain, McClory, uh, had been a boomswinger, the fellow who follows the actors with a microphone, and was working uh, for Mike Todd in London on Around the World in 80 Days. And they wanted to get shots outside Buckingham Palace, but the they weren't ready to shoot, and the guards were about to come out. And McClory said, I can arrange it. And he got the changing of the guard put back half an hour. And, and uh, that evening, Todd, calling a production meeting at the Savoy, said, I want you and I want you there to McClory. And he put McClory in charge of all the Indian locations and the Paris locations of Around the World in 80 Days. And that was the beginning of Kevin McClory. Wonderfully funny Irishman. It was a very good backgammon player. And even though they were in litigation, he and Cubby, uh, Cubby set me up with backgammon game with him. He said, he's my pigeon, he said, he's my pigeon. <laughs> he says the island is heavily guarded. You don't want to make enemies with... They, they told me that uh, Never Say Never Again didn't do quite as well at the, at the box office as Octopus, although we, we were scheduled to come out about the same time. They were delayed a little. I personally, you know, Sean's a mate of mine, so I wouldn't get any real, satis real satisfaction from that. But I think I was very happy for Cubby that it sort of vindicated his point that they were really the only ones who could produce Bond. 
There was no tension. A friendship between Sean and I when he was doing it, because he was doing Never Say Never Again, and I was doing this. I remember we had, on one occasion, having dinner at Michael Caine's own restaurant, Langham's in London. Uh, we were commiserating with one another about <laughs> how hard we had to work. I said, but just think how much we're getting paid. There are many of them. Not enough, said Sean. <laughs> I did not see all of uh, Never Say Never Again. I, I just saw some parts of it. And they, I think, were trying to put into Never Say Never Again the things that we, uh, or the, my bonds, had become. And, and they rather made the characters of Q and a man from the ministry rather clownish, instead of being very straight people. And I think that, that was where they made a mistake with it. somewhere? I have to go to Europe tomorrow on a business trip. Oh, that's a pity. I, I was just beginning to enjoy myself. I think you should stay. I'll only be gone a week. When I come back, we'll discuss the future. Well, I can't guarantee that I'll be here when you return. Oh, James, we're two of a kind. There are vast rewards for a man of your talents willing to take risks. I'm not for hire. Oh, a man of principle, with a price on his head. Naturally, you do it for queen and country. I have no country. I have no price on my head. I don't have to apologize to you, a paid assassin, for what I am. I remember the first take on this, uh, this scene, that as we broke away, more turned, and it was a rather violent turn, and her knee made contact with my nether regions, which is, which is very painful, as any man will tell you. I'm glad to see that I'm just kissing Maud this time and not twisting her arm, <laughs> threatening to break it, as I did a man with a golden gun.
John, having been editor and uh, directing second unit, was a highly, highly efficient technician. He would uh, be very well prepared, knew exactly how a scene would cut together, which is the all-important thing. Uh, so it, he was economical, not wasting time. He, weren't, he, he wasn't shooting things going to be left on the cutting room floor. And we had a very pleasant relationship as well. We laughed together, which I think is important. Something wrong? Not really. Just a feeling. As I often said, you know, during a fight, is uh, they have to be choreographed. They've got to be planned. You've got to work out where punches are coming from and where they're going to. You should never make contact, but you should look as though you've made contact. And reacting to a punch is almost more important than throwing the punch. John Wayne said you should always show where a punch is coming from and where it's going to. So. You fill the screen with your fist and it goes away and it goes across somebody's face. If their neck doesn't snap with the punch, then it's going to look like a miss. But if it snaps and you've got the sound effect, then that that is it. That's the perfect punch. And John Wayne was the best screen filler and puncher in the business. Martin Grace, who was the, doing the arranging on this, and at this point was also doubling me in some of the fights and the stunts. And Les Crawford, who had been my original double, we all had the same idea about the way a fight should be staged. And you work with a team. I never really liked working with actors doing stunts or sword fights. I'd much rather work with what I call the professional, the, the, the professional stuntman, who doesn't make mistakes. His job depends on it. The only time I've ever got hurt with, uh, was with, with an actor. You know, one, one actor who, <laughs> who had been, who'd boxed. And he thought that it was correct to throw a punch straight at my joy. <laughs> Knock me 14 feet backwards across the set. Not in a bond. Ah! Yeah, Bob Simmons and I were, in 1950, we were in a production of Mr. Roberts with Tyrone Power and Jackie Cooper at uh, the Coliseum Theatre in London. People who know the play, they probably know the film, uh, Mr. Roberts with, was wonderful with Henry Fonda and James Cagney and Jack Lemmon. It takes place on, the, on, on a ship, a supply ship in the Pacific. And Mr. Roberts, the executive officer, doesn't want to be on that supply ship, he wants to be in the war. He wants to be on an action vessel. The crew are very unhappy with this maniacal captain. 
and it is an intimate, really an intimate story. And the deck of the ship that we had at the Colosseum was three times larger than the deck of a normal ship. Uh, so it lost the warmth and intimacy, and I, and I think that was wrong, what was wrong with the London production. It was running for many, many years of great success in America. Always done in, in the small theatre. But Bob Simmons and I and about uh, 28 or 30 other young Englishmen, some actors, some stuntmen, uh, were all part of the crew with the odd line here and there and I was understudying a couple of people in it. Checkpoint Charlie. Oh, thank you, sir. That's a great company. There is a little sort of memorabilia museum there. Checkpoint Charlie, which I've been to. We had been brought up with Cold War and this sort of fear <laughs> of, of the Russians. And it was rather odd to do it, you know, especially when you're, you're posing as a secret agent. I hope they know I'm acting. Dickie Graydon, yes, Dickie Graydon. So, Dickie was very pucker. He was very pucker. I say, very brave.
this uh, location where the train is is up near Peterborough, little private railroad. I was supposed to present the best actor uh, at the Oscars for, for 1972. This, of course, was in 1973. And I stood there with Liv Ullman, and we read out, opened the envelope, read out Brando's name. And up came a lady dressed as an American Indian. Uh, she raised her hand, and I thought she was giving an Indian signal and said, how? But she was saying, no, uh, Marlon is not accepting this, and I have come here to say why he's not going to... He went into this long spiel. And at the end of it, uh, we were sort of moved off stage. I still got the Oscar in my hand. Nobody took it out of my hand. And we were all pushed back on stage now with John Wayne singing, there's no business like show business. Still nobody takes the Oscar from me. And I go out of the theater and the people out there on the bleachers, they don't know what's gone on inside. And they're all saying, hey, Brian, you got an Oscar. Great, wonderful, wonderful. And I took the Oscar home. Well, it wasn't actually home. I took it back to Covey Brockner's house where I was staying and my children were there. And in the morning, my daughter came running and I left the Oscar on the a hat stand in the, in, the, in the hall. And my daughter came rushing in in the morning. She says, Daddy, you won an Oscar. I said, no, 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 I didn't win. Uh, Marlon Brando refused it. So she says, well, why don't you give it to Michael Caine, who had been nominated that year as well? Of course, I couldn't give it to Michael. He went on to win a couple himself anyway, so it didn't matter. But I wanted to take it back to England and uh, and auction it for charity, but the Academy would not have that. They sent men with an armored car and took it away from me, although they're not worth a great deal of money. The importance of the object is. kiloton yield, the effects are indistinguishable from the American medium yield bomb. The detonator, now listen carefully. It is preset. There goes the bomb. Four hour delay. Set time for the explosion here. I heard the observation that the construction of this is rather Hitchcockian. Activate, insert. We know that the bomb is there. And and each time I try to get it, there's something gets in the way, which was very much the way Hitchcock constructed things. Becoming an actor, for me, didn't seem to be a very difficult decision to come to. I left uh, school and was working as an 
an animator, a filler, and an in-between artist, and general gopher in, in an animated film company making documentaries and instructional films for, for, for the war office. This was during the war. And I became unemployed, and friends who were in a crowd, doing crowd work, who were older than me, they'd been invalided out of the army, and they, they were doing a film called Caesar and Cleopatra. And they said, come on down, you get 30 shillings. And I went down, and after a day, I was approached by an assistant director to know uh, whether I was an actor or not. And it then went uh, through the the powers, the associate producer on the, the director of the film, uh, asked to meet my father. And they decided that if I wanted to be, there would be no reason why I couldn't go to the Royal Academy. Uh, but were my parents willing to support me again? My father was a policeman. My father, of course, w was happy to do this. Uh, so was my mother. Uh, my father, amongst his many, many talents, was an amateur actor. And so, in a, in a sense, I was doing something he would like to have done, but he was helping me do it financially. And I, I went to the Royal Academy, uh, and the minute I walked on a stage, I knew that's all I ever wanted to do. Never regretted one second. I spent, uh, during the time I was at the Academy, I was able to work in a couple of plays at the Arts Theatre in London, uh, then did a season, or part of a season of Shaw, shaving plays at, in Cambridge. Then the Army caught up with me. Well, <laughs> didn't actually come up with me. My turn came to enlist in the Army, and I spent almost three years, served most of them in Germany, um, with the British Army of Occupation and the BAOR, as it was. And I managed for the last year to get transferred to an entertainment unit. I was able to act. Well, I was able to walk on a stage and say lines. And I came out and the flourishing film career that I thought I was going to have uh, didn't happen because rank was dropping its contract list. And so they said, you know, they would put me in work, films when there was there, but I was not going to be under contract that I really thought was going to happen. And I'm very grateful, because I think that if I had gone under contract at that time, I'd have been put into films I wasn't ready. I couldn't have handled it. ...about getting out of here alive. I am more concerned about an atomic bomb explosion. And so I sort of stumbled from, I did a lot of repertory, toured in plays, I worked in live television. I was fairly dead in live television, but I worked in live television. Uh, worked when there were only two television stages in England, two sound stages at, at Alexander Palace. And then I went to America, and in America I was... Uh, a different fish in the pond. I was English. Uh, 
There weren't that great number of English actors of my age. So I did a reasonable amount of work there and was seen by MGM and Warner Brothers and Fox and Columbia and uh, I signed with, with MGM. You can stop it at the border. Working on Bond, you knew that things were sort of outlandish and uh, sort of slightly outrageous in some of the stunts that were being done. But I had great faith in the ability to, of everybody to make it all marry together. If you think that this was shot in so many different places, this whole sequence, near Peterborough on the train, in the studio, we were somewhere else on another road, and all these various shots go together, the interiors, shot very different times. You, you arrive at the studio and they say, oh, today we're going to... Um, be shooting, oh my goodness me, I've forgotten about that. You have to go back and get dressed and put on that costume that you thought you'd seen for the last time. tires going down the train tracks. <laughs> there before, uh, it occurred to me when I was just watching it now that the, think the man fishing, uh, the, the, the people on the pla platform as, as the car went through. Uh, at another time, someone would have been eating an ice cream cone and would have missed the ice cream and the angler would have pulled a boot out of the water. Uh, all those little touches were not there. I think I think it was probably the, the, the John's idea that should this should become serious and tense because there is a bomb that's ticky ticky ticky. Until we cross the border. Oh, 
The license plate is General Orloff's. We have discovered this. Where is General Orlov now? He was last reported heading towards the border. second thought they said put on a, a gorilla's outfit I thought well I don't have to comb my hair I won't have to get made up such a relief looking at these films it still amazes me and I've been in the film industry for 60 years I mean, involved with it, that they can find all these places to go to, that you can take any story almost and find things that you want to fit into it. I think it's miraculous. to the uniform. Yes, but tomorrow I shall be a hero of the Soviet Stephen Burkhoff really enjoyed that death scene. <laughs> really good. He was determined that there was going to be life in the old dog yet. I suppose to the, the Bond, the serious Bond fans, they must have thought it a little odd that Bond, if they saw stills, that he's getting into a clown makeup, he's wearing a gorilla outfit. I think because uh, the way I played Bond, uh, it would be accepted in my style of Bond, it would not be accepted probably in Sean's style, the very sort of rather serious and sardonic humour, whereas I, I signalled a joke coming. Sean was very laid back about it coming. And I don't remember whether John Glenn and I discussed at great length uh, being in a clown's outfit, but it occurred to me that to be a clown and not wanting to be recognised in a circus, there is not a better costume to wear.
in this sequence, that was uh, actually we'd moved off to another location and left it with the second unit uh, to finish it off. And it's partial where I'm hanging on the side of the train. And Martin Grace, who was doubling me, they'd been across that one length of track and he knew exactly where things were. But they kept on turning and they didn't say cut and the train kept on going and he went along a piece of track that he had not been before and that's when a great concrete stanchion was there and just smashed him in the hip and the leg. The train was doing 30, 40 miles an hour. He was in a terrible state for about six months. And absolutely amazing, he's so strong that uh, Martin was determined that he was going to get back to work. And I went to see him in the hospital and he was using the, the pulley above him to increase his muscle strength, his arms. And then within the year, he was running. And he would run and run. Amazing. Amazing what the mind, mind over, over matter and damaged muscle. Actually, in the, they have a lottery for green cards. And his name came out of the hat in Ireland, uh, which gave him the right to go and work in America. That's very effective, that roller underneath. At one point when we were shooting this train sequence, the camera's above me and the track's supposed to be going way beneath me. And this was done with a big, long roller. Strangely enough, the noise it sounded exactly like range zoom, zoom. And I had to hang underneath this thing. And this was the day that uh, ex-King Constantine came to visit the set. And he sat talking to me after, or between the takes, and he says, I don't know what you get paid for this, but I don't think it's enough. These sort of scenes are very unpleasant to do, rolling around with smoke machines and, and noise and everything else blowing in your face.
that's one of the things I, I really don't do with looking at that circus sequence. I really, I don't like the circus. I like, I like uh, high wire and, and the jugglers and the clowns, but I don't like trained animals. I don't like seeing animals in captivity at all. Dressing up, uh, in the old days of the Oscars, you dressed up. Today, I see that the ladies dress up, or <laughs> whatever dresses they have on when they get there, or how much of a dress. And the fellas do not wear all the time black tie. They don't uh, dress correctly, but I can remember the, the occasions I've been at uh, the Oscar ceremony. One time I had to present the Irving Thalberg Award to Cubby Broccoli, or introduce the presentation. And Dana Broccoli, Cubby's wife, knowing my reputation and knowing me, was uh, a little worried that I would not take uh, the occasion with the seriousness that it should be treated. And she came to the rehearsal and sat, fixed me with <laughs> with a look that said, don't you dare go off what we have discussed. <laughs> so I didn't. Of course, it was an occasion that I would not uh, clown around. some uh, travel arrangements to make. Enjoy the show. Thank you. I'm sure the general will get a big blast out of this. I know he won't be disappointed. Great stunt. I went to opening of Remy Julien's uh, sort of stunt circus in Disneyland in Paris a few years ago. 
it was great to see him again, watch some of those casts and say quite extraordinary. Bond. Good. Let him keep going. He'll be late and we'll be rid of him, too. Great, <laughs> isn't it? How long would I get in the brig if I stole your wallet? Uh, about two years. <laughs> that long? Well, in that case, I'd better return it. Son of a gun. <laughs> Where can I find the base commander? It's urgent. Let's see your circus pass. It is odd that, that, that uh, Bond is not known uh, when he arrives here. Uh, when you consider that every other every other person in the film and around the world knows that he takes a martini shake and not stirred. The names, well, they hadn't seen Sean Connery, you see. Or they had, so they didn't believe it was, that I was Bond. And the circus was actually shot uh, another place was actually 45 minutes from London, I know. 45 minutes from London because by the time I needed to go to the bathroom, we had just arrived. And that was shot at the, the American Air Base uh, on the way to Swindon. about what you had to put on a clown's outfit. Is anyone else in there? I think this point in, in making a Bond film, you just don't argue, you just get on with it. You've been filming for so many months, you say, right, ah, let's, let's uh, get somewhere in the sun. I don't think I had much feeling either way of being a clown. Of course, James Stewart had done it. And you couldn't have a better role model. Hold it there, buddy. 
You're coming with us. <laughs> Little Dickie Graydon is very busy throwing me around, isn't he? General, there's a bomb in that cannon. Sure, where else would a bomb be? <laughs> Great clown, then. I'm totally serious. I'm a British agent. What? For God's sake, tell him who I am. Kamal and Orloff double-crossed you. I saw them take the jewelry off the train. Having had a look at this, I could have had a nicer shade of lipstick. Sir, that bomb is set to explode at 3.45. That's 90 seconds from now. General, this man's either drunk or crazy. He'll destroy the entire operation. I am surprised we haven't had a, a, a cutaway in the last minute to the, the bomb ticking. He's been mantling and dismantling atomic bombs all his life. Now? Thank you very much. You did a great job, sir. Where was Kamal going? Back to India. Folks, we've had an emergency, but everything is all right now. You and your families are safe. Now, please leave the tent in an orderly manner. Thank you. The plane is refueled. So we're back in India. Are the gold certificates on board? Yes, Excellence. We'll take these also. Dollars, pounds, francs, marks. I can always print my own. What is that? Girls selling themselves. Good. It will keep the men occupied. I don't want them to see me leave.
Make sure the horses are saddled. Yes, Excellence. I'll join you in a few minutes. Do you really think you can escape me? Orloff betrayed us. I swear I knew nothing about the bomb. We're partners, we're friends. Octopussy. Octopussy. I would never do anything to hurt you. This was one of those rare days on a bomb film when I probably had a day off. But they would have had me doing publicity or something. Jerry Giroux had been in charge of publicity on uh, all the bonds I'd made up until this one, including this one. I was bringing you this. And having also been doing the same function on the Sean ones, he knew exactly what uh, questions I was going to be asked and could prepare me very well and also prepare the journalist that I wasn't going to look surprised when they asked me who was my favorite Bond girl. <laughs> this is a sort of a reflection of the spy who loved me and the parachute with the, the Union Jack. Here we come in a balloon with the Union Jack on the side. The thing is, you, you get in, you're relying entirely on the, the word of the special effects that it's going to work. And I've noticed that most special effects men are missing two or three fingers, which does not give you confidence. So this explosion will go off there and that will go off there. <laughs> they don't always. I, th I think I do have to say that uh, John Richardson did have all his fingers. I think probably the only turning point I had in uh, Korea was I'd, having, I'd come back from New York the first time to England to do a play called I Capture the Castle with Virginia McKenna. And I was uh, offered a season to join them at Stratford, the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I uh, also had this option with MGM and I had the choice. I could stay a, a thespian in Stratford or I could uh, go to Hollywood. I'm a greedy thing, I took Hollywood. I always wanted to be Stuart Granger and the thought of going to Hollywood and going to the same studio where Stuart Granger was under contract was wonderful. What are you doing? Oh. Yeah. 
Get out. We haven't time for that. Oh. Later, perhaps. Ah, now with the horses and chasing the plane. There really is just everything in this movie, in the terms of boy's own adventure. took place before principal photography. These, these stunts, the aerial stunts. shooting the, the, when we shot the interiors for this you know built on the stage with mold hanging over the edge it was so uncomfortable for him at least a man has got a shirt and something on in front she had uh, 
bare flesh, and that was a very rough surface. She was, I think, on the point of giving up. My government categorically denies the incident ever occurred. However, we request Commander Bond to return one of our most historic national treasures, the Romanov Star. In the interests of our Anglo-Soviet relationships, I'm sure that can be arranged. Uh, where is Commander Bond? Well, unfortunately, owing to the serious nature of his injuries, he's still not fit enough to travel. In, out, in, out, in. Oh dear, yes. I wish. We had a lot of fun doing this. I wish you weren't in such a weakened condition. Oh, James! <laughs> Tough life and actors. James! Well, looking at it after all these years, I, I, I'm quite amazed at the amount of work there was on that film. The different uh, different locations, the number of a very very large cast, a lot of action, and I think it probably was better than I remembered it. But this only my opinion. As a Bond film, it holds up very well. I think because it did contain all the elements of a good bond, uh, exotic locations and a beautiful, beautiful ladies. And, and Jim Bond himself was rather smartly dressed, thanks to Dougie Haywood. Thank you uh, for watching this. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed some of the comments you heard. Bond will be back in From a View to a Kill with Christopher Walken, Tanya Roberts and Grace Jones. Words before.